0: Good afternoon. This is Bassam Haddad. I am with uh, Status Al Wada podcast. And this is the first audio interview of the Environment page, which is a new page that is in the works. And perhaps by the time you hear this, it will be up on Jedaliya, Jedalia.com. We are joined here with uh, Huma Gupta, who is one of the co-editors of the Jedalia Environment page. She is an urban and architectural historian and has just completed her PhD from MIT. She is currently a postdoctoral fellow at New York University, Abu Dhabi, uh, where she is working on her book, The Architecture of Dispossession Margaret Salifa Settlement and State Building in Iraq. She will introduce today's topic and guest. Welcome, Huma. Thank
1: you so much, Bassam. I'm very excited to be a part of the Jadalia and Arab Studies Institute team. Uh, Today we will be speaking about the role of Islamic financing in the world of green bonds. In June 2017, Malaysia was the first country in the world to issue a green sukuk in order to finance a solar power plant. Sukuk are asset-backed financial certificates that are compliant with the Islamic principle of Sharia. Sukuk um, is a plural of suk, which uh, represents a proportionate ownership in a pool of assets. For our more historically minded listeners, the suk was developed more than a thousand years ago as a promissory note that could be used anywhere in the Islamic world. The word check actually is also derived from suk. However, in the contemporary world of climate finance, green sukuk bonds have emerged as a new tool for investors to fund environmentally sustainable infrastructure projects, such as solar power plants. This green Islamic finance bond has now become a multi-billion dollar industry. Anil Tripathi Anthropologist of Finance and PhD candidate at Brandeis University, whose dissertation focuses on the green bond market, is joining us today to discuss green sukuk bonds. Welcome, Anil.
0: Glad to be here, Huma. Welcome, Anil. I'm going to start with a a quick uh, question. I understand that last year there was a $258 billion issuance of green bonds in the world. Can you first explain to our listeners what a green bond is and and perhaps even to me?
2: Of course. Yeah, you know, sometimes (laughs) I have to explain to myself, too, to remember. (laughs) So a green bond is a bond first and foremost, right? So in terms of its financial structure, same as a bond and what a bond is is it's debt that's tradable in financial markets and so you know a bond is debt same as a loan is debt but it has this tradable aspect so you can think of it as you know let's say a friend of yours starts a lemonade stand but doesn't have the money to get the stand get some lemons start the business going they can ask you for a thousand dollars to get the stand up and running you give them that money, but let's say you want to get your thousand dollars quicker than your friend can repay you. You could take that thousand, turn it into a bond and sell it to other investors uh, with an interest payment. So, so that's the idea of, of a bond and a green bond expanding off of that idea is debt that is connected to financing a refinancing infrastructure that is deemed sustainable. So what does that mean? It means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, but basically, when you think of sustainability, it's about water infrastructure, renewable energy, public transit, a host of infrastructure types that we see as allowing us to have a healthier, more environmentally friendly and balanced world that could perhaps also deal with some of the the worst effects of climate change. So that's the the idea of a green bond. It's debt that finances infrastructure that can help us be in a positive relationship with our environment.
1: Wow, thank you for that explanation. I think both Basam and I learned a lot just now. Within this larger green bond kind of financial instrument, can you describe this recent trend of green sukuk?
2: Yeah, so so sukuk is interesting, right? I mean, so as you pointed out in your summary earlier, Right. Sukuk is framed so it's not debt and it doesn't have to do with interest, right? Because in Islamic finance, right? it's it's this sector that's developed in building financial instruments that are in compliance with Sharia law, right? And in Islam, the idea of taking interest is seen as sinful or it doesn't kind of connect to the larger ideology behind Sharia. So the idea of Sukuk is that, In a sense, it's very much the same structure, really, as a bond. But the wording is different, right? So much as Sukuk is called a Sukuk and not a bond, the interest is not interest. It's payment of asset ownership. Hmm. So the idea of a Sukuk is that, let's say, you're giving this money to someone to run a business, but you actually own the business. It's not a loan, even though it actually in a lot of ways plays out the same way as a loan in a bond. It's structured in terms of ownership, uh, which is very interesting. and actually has quite a bit of value in relation to some of the larger discussions of green bonds and what green bonds are trying to do. Because as I said earlier, right, a green bond is different from a regular bond because of the infrastructure it's connected to, because of the idea that a green bond is going to renewable energy as opposed to fossil fuels. But in finance, you know, you have all these mechanisms. It's really hard sometimes to connect the actual financial instruments to the material infrastructure itself, right? That was something we saw with the 2008 financial crisis, where you had all these mortgage-backed securities that were somehow connected to houses, but no one really knew how they were connected to houses. And so you had this whole blow up that impacted people and then actually did result in lots of people getting evicted from their homes. So with green bonds, it's about creating more accountability in relation of the infrastructure to the financial product. And the cool thing with Sukuk is that because of its attempts to be in compliance with Sharia law, the idea with Sukuk is that there is a direct connection between the investor and the assets that are being invested in with the Sukuk because it's ownership rather than debt.
1: And can you quickly tell us how did you as an anthropologist come to study this particular form of investing?
2: Definitely. Yeah. So, well, you know, with with green bonds uh, more broadly, I, I always knew that I wanted to look at finance and society when I was just starting my my dissertation research, I was initially thinking maybe I'd go uh, study the sushi industry in the Philippines, (laughs) financial products. But I went to a house party right as I was starting my my Ph.D. program. And my advisor's partner runs this initiative for responsible investment in the Kennedy School. And he told me if I wanted to look at finance and society, I should really look at green bonds. It was a small niche market in 2014 but he thought a lot could happen there, and a lot has happened. You know, it was about a $40 billion market back then, and now, end of 2019, it was about 773 billion in total issued. When I first came across Sukuk in this space, you know, there were a lot of ongoing conversations. The organization I've embedded myself in as an anthropologist, the Climate Bonds Initiative in London, was looking at Sukuk as a way to expand markets, particularly in Southeast Asia and Indonesia, uh, also in the Middle East. So there were a lot of conversations happening there. And also in, in 2017 was the year I was doing my kind of year-long period of fieldwork in London, and that's when the first green sukuk was issued. Uh, there were two companies in Malaysia that were trying to get the first green sukuk out, Tadao Energy and Quantum Solar. It is slightly disputed, but it seems like Tado Energy was the one that that got it out to market earlier, and so they had the first uh, Green Sukuk. And at that time, I was also involved in organizing uh, this Green bond, green Pioneer Awards program uh, for the Climate Bonds Initiative's annual conference, which was then in March 2018. And Tata Energy got the award for first Green Sukuk, and they, what was interesting was they also really wanted to bring the underwriter for the bond, which is a company called Affin Huang, and I think that really highlighted that uh, in Malaysia in particularly, there's a very interesting ecosystem of companies, as well as a lot of direct effort from the government to build Malaysia as a real center of Islamic finance, which, which Sukuk has been a big part of. And I think it's uh, no coincidence there that we saw the first green Sukuk coming out of Malaysia.
1: Can you actually just give us a sense then, what is the overall market share or presence of these bonds right now? I mean, you mentioned that's over $700 billion at the end of 2019. But how does that compare as a percentage to other similar forms of investing in green infrastructure or green bonds?
2: Yeah, or so So the $700 billion numbers for total green bonds. And that, you know, in relation to the total bond market is only about, uh, you know, 1%. Uh, wow. Or less, I think, at that point of the total. You know, you have global bond market is about $90 trillion in some estimates. And Sukuk is an even smaller portion of that. So there was about, I think, $140 billion uh, in Sukuk issued in 2019. Um, or, uh, yeah, I think around that. So And the idea is there's going to be less issuance this year. Although given the amount of bonds and debt that are coming out from governments, I think um, we might actually see more. But but yeah, these uh, instruments, you know, green bonds and Sukuk are uh, fairly fractional in relation to the totality of the bond market. But that that is a double edged sword, right? It's very small, but at the same time, that lack of size is in a sense, I think, caused the exponential growth we've seen in both of these markets. Because, you know, when you're so small to begin with, you can go up very quickly. Thanks, Anil.
0: And in your opinion, what are the promising aspects of this finance tool for climate change adaptation, renewable energy, green transportation and sustainable infrastructure projects?
2: So I think a lot of the real value here is in the marketing, right, in that these bonds and Sukuk highlight that they're going to infrastructure that is being vetted in some form for sustainability or climate resiliency. And so if investors are going to be able to shift their portfolios into infrastructure that is supposedly less destructive and helpful in dealing with climate change and in dealing with a lot of the environmental devastation uh, that we have around the world. They, they need to know what they're investing in. And, and this marketing, this labeling of green bonds as green bonds, of green sukuk as green sukuk is incredibly helpful in that goal to just have more transparency in financial markets about climate risk and environmental impact. So I think that's the real value here.
1: And Anil, I mean, I mean, that's the value, but it also seems to me that one of the ways in which this market has been constrained is because there seems to be a shortage of certifiable green projects, um, especially in the oil-reliant economies in the Middle East. So could you speak a little bit more towards what the larger shortcomings of this particular finance tool could be?
2: That's an interesting angle. I mean, I think The green bond market in particular it's always or from the beginning it was driven by investors right so the swedish pension fund Mm -hmm. ap4 and some of the other ones basically started asking around and saying we really want to have sustainable debt to invest in because we believe our investment should go towards good or projects that we believe in and so that caused a swedish bank seb to start working with the world bank uh, to issue green bonds and the World Bank issued the first bonds that were called green bonds in 2008. So you have that history. And uh, so I think to a large degree, yes, the, because investors have driven this market, you have this continual search for demand because there's so much capital amongst institutional investors and the kind of calls for increased investment in sustainable, uh, debt continues to grow on that angle. In relation to, you know, then trying to get projects out, uh, that's the challenge in terms of educating which companies, which municipalities and governments have the projects on their books that could qualify to support a green bond issue or a green Sukuk, I think is a key part of this. So at the Climate Bonds Initiative, a lot of their work that I was involved in was trying to really lay out the pipelines of projects in different countries and really making sure that there were as many products as possible that uh, were being vetted for sustainability, that were being vetted in relation to climate resiliency that could then potentially get into this market. The interesting angle on that side too, is that actually having a shortage of product of, of projects should lead to cheaper cost of capital for companies and governments that are ch- issuing green bonds and green sukuk. Right. Because if there are not enough green to cook and green bonds to go around, investors are going to really want to buy up the few that come to market. And uh, on line with that, there have been lots of debates in the market and also amongst economists and academics as to whether or not a pricing difference exists between green bonds and regular bonds, sometimes called vanilla bonds. There are lots of colors in bond markets and finance overall. But uh, that, that's one debate that has been ongoing.
1: We are speaking with Anil Tripathi about Islamic finance and green sukuk. And you're listening to the Status Podcast. We are Huma Gupta and Bassam Haddad.
0: Thank you, Huma. Uh, this is uh, Bassam again. Uh, of course, welcome again, Anil, to our first uh, podcast uh, that is uh, going to go up on our environment uh, page on Jidalia.
1: Anil what are the qualifications for a project to be marked as a, a green project a sustainable project to what is the threshold is it standard throughout the world or does it vary
2: So there there've been a lot of efforts around the world to create green bond standards of you know as the market has grown in particular so right now actually we have the European Union is establishing a sustainable finance taxonomy and trying to create a real framework that would evaluate all infrastructure connected to these bonds, and that could be used by companies and entities around the world. And they've done that in conversation with lots of the different market uh, actors in the green bond market. In terms of how all of this is developed, you know, early on in the market at the Climate Bonds Initiative, you had them developing a climate bond standard where they leveraged um, scientific expertise and different technical and industry working groups to try to establish what should be the thresholds for water infrastructure, public transit, renewable energy that are connected to green bonds. But you know, they did that as a nonprofit entity and so they've developed a certification program out of that. At the same time, you had the Green Bond Principles came out of the banks. Uh, So a lot of the lead underwriters that were working with Green Bonds, Citi, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, JP Morgan, and others came together and they created the Green Bond Principles in 2014, which didn't really have any clear metrics in terms of evaluating the sustainability of infrastructure, but did... Lay out a you know framework in terms of how to issue a green bond. So having you know a framework of the types of projects the bonds were going to go to, uh, listing out characteristics of the infrastructure projects, they created a pretty simple template uh, for other issuers to come to market with. And so we we have this market activity. On the one hand, we have uh, civil society NGOs. On another. And then we have increasingly these larger uh, government programs, public sector programs to create regulation in China. There's been an interesting story on this with the Chinese green bond catalog, where they were also trying to create their own screening for infrastructure financed by green bonds, but they also included clean coal, which is definitely more objectionable uh, by European and American investors. And so the Chinese green bond market initially emerged much more as a domestic phenomena. So I think what we're seeing around the world is we have this proliferation of standards by different public entities, all in conversation with one another. And so there is, um, you know, some standardization. There's also some regulation coming from markets, uh, particularly market indices. So Repsol, a Spanish oil and gas company, issued a green bond for retrofits on oil refineries, right? Which was decreasing emissions, but at the same time was connected to infrastructure that I I think a lot of people feel we really need to close down, right, if we're going to really deal with climate change adequately. And so that was very controversial. Uh, Repsol did get an award for sustainability from an oil and gas magazine, and their bonds were bought by investors, but their green bonds were rejected from the Barclays MSCI Green Bond Indice and most, I think, all mainstream green bond indices. So you can look at that and say that there is a bit of you know, robust oversight in terms of green bonds are being screened in a way that any serious uh, sustainable investor isn't picking up bonds that haven't had some form of vetting.
1: That's really interesting, Anil. I'm also thinking right now, you know, in the time of this COVID 19 pandemic, that there's, of course, all these observations about a global downturn in, for instance, carbon emissions and pollution, similar to what we experienced in 2008. But what people don't often realize is that right after the financial crisis was over, there was a huge surge and uptake in carbon emissions because there was a huge boom, you know, in construction and Projects, And it, so it seems that, you know, this is the moment really to think about this type of financing mechanism and green bond infrastructure and some sort of universal regulatory frameworks where people and certain companies aren't able to manipulate those standards and get projects funded that really don't adhere to the goals of climate adaptation and climate change mitigation.
0: I have a question regarding the bonds. Are these bonds Sharia compliant? I mean, the fact that they are Sharia compliant, do you think it's a huge draw for investors, both in the uh, Islamic world and OECD markets?
2: Yeah, I think there is a, you know, a draw for, for Sharia investors. And increasingly, we see Sharia investors grow as a subset. So I think Islamic finance Overall, you know, it's emerged in a really interesting way as a dialogue between financial markets and lots of academics, right, who are trying to think intellectually in terms of how financial activity could exist or could occur in a way that could be aligned with with Sharia rather than so many of the different institutions and governments that claim to be connected to Sharia just doing mainstream investing. So, I think you know the, these investments and this whole ecosystem is, of Islamic finance has grown quite a bit over the last uh, fifteen years. So, I think that's one thing that's active here. And I think with the growth of Islamic finance, it's been very helpful to build, in a sense, a kind of a parallel infrastructure that supported different uh, countries and cities around the world. So, Kuala Lumpur, for example, I think has benefited quite a lot from the growth of Islamic finance and uh, the development of that city's financial markets. So, as I said earlier on, right, we had the first Green Sukuk come out of Malaysia, and I think that was a direct result of real government activity in terms of looking at Islamic finance as a way that Kuala Lumpur could, could really set itself apart from other uh, financial uh, bases such as Singapore, Hong Kong, uh, very nearby neighbors of of Kuala Lumpur, so I think it's it's had a pretty strong effect there.
1: I know you hinted at this earlier, but do you think that there is a danger that these bonds can contribute to a larger process of greenwashing corporate entities that are heavily invested in fossil fuels? Now, I'm thinking specifically of large oil companies like Aramco, retail firms like Majid al Futtaim, or banks like the National Bank of Abu Dhabi, who are investing in corporate and or sovereign green sukuk. What are your thoughts on that?
2: Definitely. Yeah, I think there's always a risk of greenwashing whenever anyone argues, right, that one form of development or trajectory is sustainable rather than another. And I think this is a a key topic in all sustainable finance discussions, right? I think that example of Repsol's green bond issue was a very direct uh, case study in terms of how greenwashing would be perceived by the, the green bond market. And it kind of set off this chain reaction. So I think, you know, and I think this is a particular importance, right? When we think about the Middle East and the reliance of a lot of countries on oil and gas exploitation, there's a great book, Spaceship in the Desert by Gulche Ganel, that really looks at this topic of, you know, when you're an oil-rich state and you try to do a sustainable development project, you know, what are the politics of that? What are the effects on the people working on those projects? And so I think similarly with what I've seen in the green bond market, we have this market where people are building careers, trying to gear investment in a more sustainable direction, but it is also still a part of the larger financial industry, which is, which seems to be driving a lot of decision-making in a direction that is unsustainable and deleterious to our larger environment. I think the COVID-19 lockdown that we're all currently experiencing is really highlighted that so much of the industrial activity of the commerce that our financial industry as a whole is financing is having these negative effects that we really need to live up to and realize that these are choices that, that we can decide collectively. So particularly thinking about Aramco. So I remember being at the London Stock Exchange in December, 2017 for the issuance of Indian Railway's first green bond, which is going towards public transit. And so at that launch, right, the London Stock Exchange was highlighting its work in sustainability, but at the same time they were still hoping to bring a public listing of Aramco to market, which has, you know, occasionally been listed as the world's largest emissions polluter, with its uh, the company's whole focus, right, being really in oil and gas exploitation. So, you know, can you be an exchange that is trying to support its sustainable investments and its listings? but also be trying to profit off of such a large scale uh, oil and gas operation. I think it's it's a tricky thing. And a lot of the theories of change within sustainable finance, impact investing, all these initiatives have to balance with this paradox and this difficulty in terms of thinking, how do we both engage, but make sure that we are trying to create meaningful change in this sector where we're trying to encourage oil and gas companies and other entities that do not have the most sustainable practices right now to actually change their behavior. And when you're trying to do that type of work, there are always gonna be issues of greenwashing. There's gonna be anxieties as to how this will work and how it won't. And ultimately the, the main answer to these questions, right, is how things actually play out in the next 50 to 40 years if these sustainable finance projects have resulted in global emissions decreasing or not. And uh, unfortunately, by the time we find that out, we'll probably be locked into a good degree of climate change as well. So it's a it's a tricky thing that, you know, a lot of people (laughs) in space are constantly grappling with in terms of trying to balance their own work lives and the amount of effort they're trying to put in to move this behemoth of global finance in a direction they think is more positive and uh, trying to grapple with that reality that we have increased financial activity and global emissions continue to go up.
1: Wow, Anil, you've given me so much, um, both hope and anxiety at the same time.
0: <laughs>
1: I don't know how you feel, Bassam. Uh,
0: same same here. And But I'll be honest, i given this is not my field, I was on the receiving end of lots of knowledge. So I really am thankful and appreciative, uh, Anil. Thank you so much, Anil, and thank you, Huma. Uh, That was Anil Tripathi, an anthropologist of finance and a PhD candidate at Brandeis University who works on the formation of the green bond market. Mm -hmm. We are Huma Gupta and Bassam Haddad. And thank you all for listening to uh, Status Al-Wada. And thanks again to our guest and hope we uh, we can catch uh, up with you later or another
2: time, Anil. Anytime. Thank you both very much.
3: You've been listening to Status Audio Magazine. The Status is produced by the Arab Studies Institute in partnership with Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, co-sponsored by George Mason University's Middle Eastern Studies Program and the American University of Beirut's Asfari Institute for Civil Society and Citizenship. Interested in pitching an interview, a program episode, or becoming a partner? Email our associate producer Paola Messina at paola at a status hour dot com. To listen to more conversations, on the scene reports and discussions, visit our website, statushour.com or subscribe via iTunes and listen to us on the go. You can also friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter.